0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you
1: did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Brian Kilmeade. I'm Kennedy. I'm Sean Duffy. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, February 29, 2024, I'm Eben Brown, there is still no definitive path to the end of the Israel-Hamas war, despite what some US officials keep insisting. This as Hamas tried blaming Israel for a number of new civilian deaths.
0: Everything coming out of the battlefield, doesn't matter which side, should always be viewed As susceptible to misinterpretation or misinformation, unless it's validated by some third party.
1: This is the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition.
0: From the Fox News Podcasts Network, I'm Janice Dean, Fox News senior meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.
1: President Biden had been optimistic that a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip was just a weekend away, and very quickly both sides denied that. And the fighting continues, especially as Israel is soon expected to make an advance into what it considers Hamas's last stronghold, the city of Rafah. It comes as the Islamic holy month of Ramadan nears. Meanwhile, on Thursday, Hamas accused Israel of killing a high number of Gazan civilians in an attack as they attempted to pick up aid like food, water, medicine, blankets. But Israel's defense forces were quick to provide aerial video to show that civilians were killed when they trampled one another, trying to retrieve that aid from the trucks. And yet the narrative is out there.
0: Yeah, I don't think no matter what you do, there's gonna be people in Gaza that are gonna believe Hamas no matter what. And again, that's the side that they've picked.
1: Brent Sadler is a retired U.S. Naval officer and advisor to top Pentagon brass. He's now a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, specializing in naval warfare and advanced technology in the Allison Center for National Security. And so no real surprise
0: there. Now, if you're really the place that matters is the American public. And in that case, the American media really has to be very careful and very scrupulous about what they put forward as factual and always double check everything coming out of the battlefield doesn't matter which side should always be viewed as susceptible to misinterpretation or misinformation unless it's validated by some third party that's all just good business practice and certainly with the fog of war over gaza I think we should be very careful about what we take for for granted coming out of there. That being said, the Israelis' track record has been far better than anything coming out from Hamas or those siding with Hamas. And so if push comes to shove, I'm going to take the information coming from Israel before anything I hear coming from the other side.
1: I think that theme has sort of continued into this ongoing discussion about a call it a ceasefire, call it a truce, call it a break in hostilities. And it does seem to wrap in the U.S. government because there there is a push by the Biden administration to to have a ceasefire, to not have the Israeli Defense Force conduct an intense operation in the city of Rafah in the southern end of the Gaza Strip, to not do such a thing during the uh, Islamic holy month of Ramadan. And there was some optimism expressed by the President of the United States that this would be done by Monday or something like that. Uh, And both the Israeli and the Palestinian sides have come forward to say, that's uh, Not going to happen. So who's who's looking for the ceasefire? And and yeah, I think that's the you know, why? Why would the president of the United States make such an announcement that he couldn't back up in words or or, or with uh, news from the ground?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think the folks that are most likely to benefit from a ceasefire of any length right now are, are the Hamas uh, fighters that are buried under in their tunnels in Rafa right now. They're the only beneficiaries. And quite frankly, it doesn't make any military operational sense at this stage to have a ceasefire it's better to let the military operations again following the laws of armed conflict which time and time again the Israelis have been proven to be adhering to this needs to play out to its conclusion and again the objective I think by all sides in the West to include this White House is the destruction or at least the removal of Hamas as a viable force in Gaza there's no there's no future in Gaza for Hamas. But that being said, I mean, the politics back here at home, I think it's pretty straight line that you can connect the dots as to for why the White House is continually putting out these feelers or these announcements or pronouncements of a ceasefire. And that is because they hope by doing that, it'll placate a portion of their political base that is much more aligned to the Palestinian cause than to Israel.
1: You mentioned that you would take more credence to the word of the idf than the hamas side i I think that's a a reasonable position to take as someone who is certainly an advanced student of warfare such as yourself how has the idf prosecuted this war they i i I would imagine that they have done this exceptionally well and also exceptionally um what's the word transparent tell me your thoughts on that give your assessment
0: i'm always very, uh, I mean, again, the first, the guiding light is U.S. interest. And so far, what Israel has done hasn't conflicted with any U.S. interest. The other side of it is they've not targeted intentionally civilians or done any horrific human rights violations like we saw on October 7th. Uh, That being said, looking at the conduct of the war from October 7th, I think it's been by and large effective and fairly well professionally run. I mean, there are cases that have been clear that there were mistakes made on the part of Israel. That is a, a feature of and in the chaos of conflict. But by and large, I think the military operations have been done honorably and effectively to date. From October 7th and earlier, very different. Hamas actually probably had one of the most successful military operations in the region in decades. They blew it by becoming a band of pirates and rapists killing innocents, but they had taken extreme advantage of the Israelis militarily. It was a very, the operation side of this and the setup is textbook for study in the future.
1: Certainly it's begin to uh, encompass the region and there seems to be this This lassoing of the U.S. into this to a degree because of uh, namely other actors, whether it's uh, Iran based uh, proxies in Syria and Iraq that have been attacking our troop locations, whether it's the Houthis firing on uh, U.S. interests at sea. The big fear here, between this and, of course, the the Russia Ukraine conflict and a a looming problem with China and Taiwan, is that we're in these opening salvos of a World War Three. Two years ago, I might have said you you know that I was I might have said I was being hyperbolic or or overexcited. One could certainly make that conclusion now.
0: My biggest criticism of the current policymakers and and I will include military planners that have gone along with the the political direction on this is that I mean, I'm a southerner. And to coin a phrase is they've been shooting behind the duck since day one. So rather than getting ahead and ending these conflicts, you know, setting up the Ukrainians to, for success early, giving them the type of weapons to end that war quickly in the beginning, like long range artillery fires, things like that. Uh, instead, we they took an iterative little bit piecemeal approach that all it did was buy us a battle of attrition in Ukraine. And it also taking us into this, this negotiation for ceasefires in the midst of a successful military operation on the part of our ally, the Israelis. So it'll just buy us into these bleeding long-term attritional fights everywhere when we least can afford it, because we need to be game on in the Pacific. So all this bloodletting is everywhere else, but not where it matters and where perhaps the most bloody and most violent war that will involve the United States is likely to occur.
1: We're speaking with Brent Sadler. He's a retired Navy officer and now a senior researcher at the Heritage Foundation on the progress of the Israel-Hamas war and how the U.S. is and isn't involved in the growing East conflict. On the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition, we'll have more straight ahead. You're talking about blood literally and also figuratively because this bloodletting is also a financial bloodletting. Every time <laughs> yes. the, the Houthis fire something at us that we have to then respond to it costs Mm -hmm. us way more in terms of taxpayer money than it than it does their own resources that but that's by design on their part isn't it
0: i think so i mean you got to look at the other way is that you know a twenty thousand dollar drone with weapons on it shot by the houthis takes a million dollar missile to shoot down but if that twenty thousand dollar drone hits a two billion dollar warship it could cause tens of millions of dollars of damage. So there's another part, another part of the equation, but the Navy's gotten better at actually balancing the cost. I mean, a drone can be shot out of the out of the sky with small arms fire, and we're using helicopters and aircraft now because we have that force there in the Red Sea. So we can actually take the most cost effective countermeasure against the threat. Now they still they're still shooting ballistic missiles and some more advanced cruise missiles we're still gonna be shooting the million dollar bullets every once in a while. And so things like high energy lasers, new systems need to come online sooner and need to be tested in this kind of environment. But yeah, the cost proposition is not favorable.
1: What can you tell us about the advancement of our weaponry that's in the region? Because I I would like to think that ours, we are the United States of America, is more advanced than what the Houthis either have on their own or what Iran could supply them. But in some cases, it turns out that they've got some pretty complex stuff. And that's alarming, but maybe it shouldn't be. I I don't know the answer. You, You would know the answer.
0: Yeah, for folks who've been watching this for a long time, it's not a surprise. In fact, if you go back to the 70s, The world that we're in now was predicted that, you know, third party countries, you know, not in the great power and then the cold war. So third world having advanced cruise missiles and ballistic missiles was projected to eventually occur, requiring our military to rapidly change and invest in some next generation. The problem is, is we've been kind of asleep at the wheel for the last 20 years on this. And so countries or groups rather, like the Houthis, with the help of our enemies, Iran and China and Russia, they're shooting some pretty advanced stuff out there. They're not able to shoot it very straight and they're missing their targets a lot of time, sometimes hitting the wrong target, but it has proliferated all over the world. And so we don't really have the luxury of so overwhelmingly outmatching anyone out there that we can take for granted our access and not get taken a hit. So it's a very dangerous world for our Navy.
1: How quickly can our navy scale up? Ah, <laughs> so building
0: munitions—it's uh, going to take you. Probably, will it'll probably take a year to two years to actually start to see a return on that. I mean, the howitzers, which is not a very complex piece of gear, right? Uh, the artillery rounds—I mean, they—they're—they're they're upscaling that two years into the Ukraine war. It took us almost a year to realize we had a problem on that before we did anything. So it took a year for the higher end, like cruise missiles. I mean, two to three years before you see real meaningful changes in the output. That requires a a sustained investment from Congress of higher defense dollars and prioritization in that regard. That's an open question. When you get to ships, that's a different game. You're talking five to 10 years before you really see any meaningful result of capacity coming out the back end of that.
1: Brent Sadler, you are with the Heritage Foundation Senior Research Fellow. You specialize in naval warfare and advanced technology. Thank you so much for being with us on the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition. All right. Thank you very much.